0: Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafiq. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. 2019 Arkansas Teacher of the Year, Stacy McAdoo of the Historic Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas had a vision over 20 years ago that she would one day stand and speak to a crowd of millions. She interpreted that vision to mean she would change the world as a writer, educator and an advocate for students. Today, her vision is a reality as she represents the voice of 34,000 educators and 500,000 students across Arkansas. McAdoo mixes passion and poetry to amplify the voices of her students, honor the history of her school, and unite her community. Stacy's daughter, Jamie McAdoo, is a 17-year-old senior at Little Rock Central High School. She is a thespian who is also active in advanced performance choir and president of the Righteous Poetry Club. Jamie has a love of language and at the age of two was bitten by the spotlight bug when she performed on stage at the College of the Ozarks during a summer institute for hundreds of educators. Since then, this professional poet, award-winning playwright, published author, recording artist, and performer has been blessing the mic at various events, colleges, and churches throughout Arkansas and surrounding states. Most recently, Jamie was crowned the 2019 Miss Heritage's Outstanding Team and will be competing for Miss Arkansas's Outstanding Teen in June. I would like to welcome Stacy McAdoo and Jamie McAdoo. It's an honor to have you both on the podcast, especially together as we celebrate Women's History Month. woo Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> You're a powerful mother and daughter duo, and this is my first intergenerational interview, so I'm really excited about it. With that, I'd like to welcome you to Roots of the Spirit podcast. Okay, well, thank you. We are so excited to be here. I thought it would be cool to recollect how we came to know one another. I wish you could
1: see my face because you have me over here grinning from ear to ear. Just to even be considered is an honor. And it's really crazy because oftentimes we're just going about our normal day and don't even think about any implication of the way we live our lives and how that might possibly impact someone else because we're just doing what we do. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I don't know if your memory is the same as my memory, but here's what I remember. I had first, I just started teaching over at Central Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was amazed at how few students in my class actually knew the story of Little Rock Central High School. And so I, I made a point to take my students over to the museum across the street. And at that time, it wasn't the visitor center. It was the mobile uh, gas station that had been turned into the museum. And I didn't fully understand or know the story either myself. And it amazed me when and you were one of the tour guides. I was like, "Oh my God!" Like what? <laughs> I was taken aback to be in the presence of living history, and that—that's my first memory of you. And I, I can remember how excited I was when we went back to the classroom and we were debriefing um, the activities and what all the the students learned there. And the thing that stuck in my mind and has always stuck in my mind is how poised, because you were still in. In college at that time <laughs> and knowledgeable and elegant you were, and not even just that, but just the, your creation story actually. And I'm like, how could someone, like you are a living example of, of love and how people can experience hatred and still have the capacity to love. That that's when I see you, that's what I see. But and that's
2: her personality too. I mean you I can feel her spirit. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah, you have a very loving, welcoming, beautiful aura that you can pick up, which is cool because your creation story, as mom said, is the foundation of love, even through racial issues in the world at the time, like they still found that love has no color.
0: Wow. Talk about you smiling. I am, I am, am, I'm, I'm, I'm letting it wash over me because both of you have just bestowed upon me some beautiful, beautiful sentiments. I can't thank you enough. That's very kind of you. And, you know, you talk about how you said you're just living your life and you don't realize that you might have an impact. And that's the same for me. My mother at this juncture, Minnie Jane Brown Tricky, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, I think that she even has a hard time like soaking that in and accepting it because we do all consider ourselves normal everyday people. And it's just, it, it really touches me that you have those memories. And I have... Very fond memories of you as well. I remember you bringing your class over. You know, I started out not knowing my own history. I had snapshots. I had little bits and pieces, but the big picture is something that is still evolving, but especially at that time, I mean, I worked at the Central High His- National Historic Site in that mobile gas station, which was our small visitor center. Right. Like you said, I was in college. I was a student at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. So remember you, uh, Miss McAdoo, and bringing your students over, and I just found it started to help me understand the importance. Right. And there are a, like a handful of incredible educators like yourself that uh, will be with me for life because of your dedication. From one of your blog posts, you were talking about your upbringing and you said you grew up in Little Rock, quote, Mm -hmm. south of 630. Right. So could you describe what it was like growing up in Little Rock, quote, south of 630? At the time,
1: growing up again, you're, you're living your life. And so it doesn't really mean anything to you that you are south of whatever these tracks or these, whether they're literal railroad tracks or invisible railroad tracks, you just know that this is your life and this is your existence. But as I was getting older, my part of town was referred to as that part of town. And so I didn't quite understand, I guess, the gravity of the inequities that were surrounding us until much, much later. And it's so crazy because mama always told us that we were poor. She always told me that she didn't have any money and blah, blah, blah. And I just never believed her because I didn't, I didn't feel like I was poor. I felt like we were rich and we were rich with love and, and and, um an unrelentless amount of faith in us and
0: so i I, I never felt the limitations that I guess I should have felt or I could have felt. For the benefit of someone who is not familiar with Little Rock, can you kind of describe how Little Rock is configured along racial lines and especially as it relates to when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I lived
1: in what was was considered Southwest Little Rock. At the time, Southwest Little Rock was actually really a suburb of Little Rock. And then some kind of way, I guess, the city started growing and, and boundaries and lines changed. But over the gears, white flight started happening. I can remember my street specifically. We had next door to us was a Japanese American family. Um, my childhood best friend was a little white girl who lived one street over, two houses down. I mean, it was a real diverse neighborhood. And I remember distinctly when the signs started coming up, they started moving out. They moved, they being the city or uh, corporate America, people sort of had a, a vision and they knew that the city, the city itself was getting ready to move or maybe it was already moving and we didn't quite know because we pretty much stayed in our pocket Mm -hmm. but we had we used to have a movie theater and a putt golf course and a mall and all of these things and attractions there. And all of those things left. And they went west, which is where they now talk about, you know, that 630 freeway. So this freeway came in and pretty much divided the community. So on one side, on the north side of 630 is the more affluent neighborhoods. And then on the south side of it are the less affluent neighborhoods
0: just because we're talking about like my podcast is all about race and racism I'd like to ask you both can you recall the very first time you became aware of the color of your skin I was at daycare
1: and we went to the daycare right down the street from my house again very diverse neighborhood we were at daycare mama said I used to come home every day and I would talk about my best friend. Yeah, you know, my little friend um, I'm just going to call her Megan. That's not her name, but we'll just say Megan. And mom said every day I would come home talking about her. And finally, one day I must have said something about her hair, or I said something that let mama know that this child was not a black child. And mama said that she, she looked at me and she said, well, Stacy, what color is she? And she said that at that moment, I paused for a really, really long time. And I said, mama, I think she's kind of pink. and that it was that moment that her heart just really it, it it broke and it was when everything dawned on her that as children we don't we don't know anything we just like who we like and we're friends with whomever and it's not until we become aware of all of these social constructs that we start analyzing and formalizing, you know, all of this stuff. And so she said that she made a point then that she was gonna try not to to take my view of the world. And and I had absolutely no concept that this little girl was any different from me.
2: One of my earliest ones is that so I went to Terry Elementary pre-K through fourth grade. It had a lot of black students It was kind of diverse, but it had a lot of Black students. So that's what I was used to, like, growing up as a kid. All
1: right, just jump in there. So at the time when you went there, it was one of the most diverse elementary schools here, which is why we put you in that one specifically.
2: Okay. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) You're (laughs) welcome. But like all of my friends were black that I remember when I was in elementary school. So then fourth grade, I know we got a new principal and some other stuff happened. And so they, my parents thought it was best to transfer me to Jefferson Elementary, which is like 99% white. And so that was an interesting transition for my brother and I, he was in fifth grade. I was in fourth grade. So he only had one year and I had two. But I remember when I first went there, how like uncomfortable I felt because it was only two black people in my fourth grade class it was me and this other black girl and I just remember that it was real weird and uncomfortable and I tried to make friends and that could have just been because by fourth grade you already have your friends and your cliques but I mean they already had their friends and those were their neighborhood friends whom they had sleepovers with and went to pool parties together with and so like I felt like I didn't really fit in. And um, I've been exposed to the arts my whole life. So I remember in fourth grade, I wrote a song entitled (laughs) Nobody Knows. And I put a little music video to it. And my mom posted it on Facebook. (laughs) And it was just saying, knows what I'm going through. Nobody understands me. I have no friends. Like no one looks like me. And it was, it was kind of, it was a big experience for me. And I remember crying a lot and saying, yeah. mama, can I go back to Terry? All of my friends are there. Like, you know, I fit in more there. And Jefferson was kind of like a, I guess a culture shock because even just the things that I had experienced or the shows I talk about, like, you know, you saw that new proud family or something. Mm-hmm. And so just like small little societal or social things that, that black kids experience that white kids don't. So it's kind of like I didn't really relate to the Jefferson kids. And I remember that being a pretty big deal to me. Um, It wasn't like overt racism. It was just the feeling of uncomfortableness or for me as a little, what, eight year old kid or something. But I just remember that I didn't like going to school because it was a whole bunch of people who I didn't relate to who didn't understand. And I, who I felt didn't want to be my friend, and I didn't know if that was because I was black or because I was new. I was just very uncomfortable. But um, I think representation matters, especially right. in the classroom in doctors' offices. Didn't like right. wherever little kids are exposed to. They need to see people who look like them. And so like, I never had a connection with my fourth grade teacher who was white, but my fifth grade teacher was black and um, she was real good mad mm-hmm. and she was Miss Anderson and she would sing and she would be like, so, you know, like a mean is your average. So she was saying, get yourself a mean, get yourself a mean, add them all up. Divide by the number and like I don't know if that's just like black culture that we make stuff creative and interesting. but like I remember that I had a relationship with Miss Anderson and it could have been that she saw a little black girl who was the minority in her class and she developed that relationship with me. but with like all of the other white students and my white fourth grade teacher, it was just a true disconnect in the in that classroom. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you both for your openness and sharing your experiences. Stacy, can you talk to me about your educational career?
1: I always knew I wanted to be an educator. I didn't always tell people that's what I wanted to be, and it, it's really funny because um, Michelle Obama, in her her book Becoming, she has a very similar story uh, about her and her aspirations. I think growing up, you learn really quickly what society thinks is acceptable and what will make people proud when you say what you want to be, because that's usually one of the first questions that adults ask you. So by the time I was growing up, public school teachers were not as revered as they used to be. So I heard all of the rumbling and i knew that they they didn't get paid a lot of money so i did not i didn't want to tell people that i wanted to say something that would make them say wow and be super impressed i knew i love children and the only thing i that i could think of to say is that i wanted to be a pediatrician and so they would oh my gosh that's so great wow 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 but i knew i didn't want to be a pediatrician mm-hmm. my earliest remembrances of of being a child or of me being in my room with my having all my dolls lined up and and I was playing school I was teaching them how to do whatever I thought was important that day and my little brother was my only live pupil that is so cute (laughs) and and we played school all the time so I I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Going through high school, through school, you know that that's not what I told people. That's not what I I I wanted. I wanted to acknowledge, I guess. So I went to college. Um, I've always been a writer. I've always loved the written word. My next thing after being a teacher that I I knew that I felt was my calling was to be a writer. But again, that still was not the acceptable answer to tell people in the community that you want to be. That's sort Mm -hmm. of like saying, you know, I want to be a singer. or an artist that those things are typically not very encouraged. I remember telling my older aunts that I wanted to write, and they were like, "Well, what are you going to go to college for?" And I said, "Well, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go into uh, creative writing." And the first question they would ask is, "Well, what are you gonna do with that degree?" So um, I just stopped telling people that that's. What what I wanted to do. And I just went and took classes. My bachelor's is actually in professional and technical writing. So I still didn't go the education route. And it wasn't until my brother, the, the one life pupil that I mentioned a few minutes ago, he died in a car accident right after I graduated in December, so that May, April of of that next semester is when he died in the car accident, and I knew then that I was wasting my time, that it was life was too short to be worried about trying to have some career or an answer to please other people, and that I needed to embrace what I felt I was put here on earth to do. So I quit my job, quit my job, well, cut my hair off, quit my job, and enrolled in a Initially, I enrolled in an alternative certification program, which was an an entryway to allow second career people to get into education. I was only in there maybe two days or so, and I saw a posting for a master's program for people who wanted to get a master's of art in teaching. And so I enrolled in a master's program and actually taught probably that year that I first met you. um, I was teaching full time and in grad school
0: to become certified. After you earned your master's, which is unbelievable that you finished in just one year, how did you then go on to become a teacher specifically at Central High School? Before I officially quit my
1: job and cut my hair off and all of that stuff, I was still at Alltale for whatever reason, I'm looking at job openings for teachers. And I actually applied to be a teacher. And I got a phone call from this lady named Nancy Russo, who at the time was a principal at a middle school. And the position was for an English position. And I, I went to the interview and we instantly connected. And she told me, she said, I, I would love to hire you. Once you get all of your credentials." You know, come come back to me and I, I will definitely, I will definitely make something happen. And she gave me her card and I did not forget that. So once I finished college and, and knew that this is what I was supposed to do after Craig had died and all of that, I... Went to the master's program. While I was in there, I reached out to Russo. By this point, she was no longer at Pulaski Heights, but she did connect me with the the principal there. And I had an interview with him, and he loved me and offered me a position there. I am now sitting in summer training with the other English teachers, getting ready to make my new career as a seventh grade English teacher. (laughs) And I get a phone call from Um, Central High School. That said, a communications teacher had just turned in their resignation, and would I be interested in coming to Central High School instead of being an English teacher? I was like, yes. (laughs) 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 Not guaranteed. We just want to know. We're gonna have to put posted, and you'll have to come for an interview, and all of this. Went to the interview, and apparently, that I was meant to be at Central. So the interview was wonderful. They loved me. I love them. And that's it. I've been teaching at Central my entire, my whole professional career.
0: That's wonderful. Jamie, what was it like growing up in your family with your parents and just the nature of your upbringing? I read somewhere where you said your parents were your first history teachers. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yay. Okay. I love (laughs) talking about like my family when it comes to the arts, because- It's so easy. Like it comes so naturally because it is my whole life and I am very passionate about it. So I'll start when I was a kid, but (laughs) I was three. I was three and it was at the College of the Ozarks for a teacher institute that my parents went to. And I sung This Little Light of Mine" on the stage at three years old. And at the end, I got on my knee and I was like, ta-da. And (laughs) it was like... Uh, it was hundreds of educators there and that was like my first performance on stage. So I've been singing at least since three, since I could talk. And then, um, Poetry wise, well, my parents both worked at a poetry radio show. So I like to say that poetry is like in my blood, but they had their own slam team and they would compete all around the nation and they would practice like literally in our den in our house. And I'll be a little kid and I would come and listen to them and sit in and I would leave and go back in my room inspired and I would start writing too. And i would come back to their next meeting and be like, look what I wrote. And they'd all be impressed and they'd be like, whoa, you're you're so good (laughs) and stuff. So like I've been writing since I was young because they exposed me to poetry because it was literally in my house. And um, they've always taken me to like art museums or science museums. They exposed us to everything to see what we had like a liking to. But we all we both kind of lean towards the arts, even though my brother, he's got some math and science in him, too. Those aren't my strong suits. <laughs> but um, so singing since three, writing poetry since as early as I can remember, maybe third or fourth grade. But professionally middle school, sixth grade, I wrote a poem after I read a book called, I don't remember, but the main character's name was Sylvia. And it was about the Little Rock Nine. And I wrote a poem called, I Don't Get It. And I sung, We Shall Overcome in it. And I think I performed it first at like a church or something. And from there, a lot of different people asked me, can you do it at this event? Can you do it at this event? Yes, yes, yes. And so that's when I first became a professional poet because they started paying me for it. Hello. Paid gigs in middle school? Seventh grade was my biggest audience because I performed for the teacher's convocation, which was all the educators, principals and the LRSD. So that was 900. That was 900 teachers and educators and stuff. And I was in seventh grade. So I've been writing poetry professionally since sixth grade, since about 12 years old. And then in high school, I got exposed to playwriting, which was a different aspect of writing in that I had been doing performance poetry, like spoken word poetry. And I had loved poetry slams and stuff like that. But playwriting was a different format, a different type of writing. But I liked it as well. And I submitted original 10 minute plays into different playwriting competitions. And I won some of them and some of them I didn't. But it was all as well. It was still really fun. So now I am a I can proudly say that I am a 17 year old professional poet, award winning playwright, former on air radio personality, newly published author with an original book of poetry available in local bookstores. And most recently, I was crowned Miss Heritage's Outstanding Teen, which qualifies me for Miss Arkansas's Outstanding Teen in June. That is so absolutely amazing. I, I just think you're so awesome. <laughs> Thank so cool. you. And it's because of my parents. and um, But it's, it's more than just them exposing us and taking us to lectures and forums and community events or to poetry slams and open mics and creative outlet places. It's more than them just it, just throwing us there and dropping us off or showing us that. But it's also their parenting style. They taught us that we could and that, you know, there was no limit and there was no age limit. There was no limit to anything that we could be successful for if it was what we were talented and if it was what we were passionate about. Yeah, there was no limit. And that greatness is inevitable and that we can just we can make stuff happen. So they like encouraged it. They inspired us to do it. And so we took a liking to it and we
0: made it our life. Brilliant. Brilliant. I remember watching you grow up in the community at the various functions that you described. And I always, like I've told your mom that I felt a kinship with you, even though you were a little, a little brother was a little boy, but it was because my mother did the same thing with me and my little sister. And sometimes we went kicking and screaming and we didn't really understand the significance of it at the time. But I just remember thinking like how cool your parents were that they brought you into that space. People who are listening, are going to have to stop and think like, to what degree do we bring young people to the table? What are we actually exposing them to? And in a
2: lot of of like those community forums or just the panel discussions, me and my brother were the youngest kids there. We were, sometimes we were like, mama, why do we have to be at this? But then sometimes we would actually be listening and taking notes and we would be excited to raise our hands when they opened it up for Q&A because we were like, oh, I want to go up there and ask my question. And a lot of times people were impressed with my parents for like, wow, you brought your kids to this, but also for us for paying attention and just being young and being able to understand. And my dad always says that, you know, it's not a PG world. Like some people lie to kids or they don't, they want to shelter them from stuff. And I feel like my relationship with my parents and the things that they taught us, never had us too sheltered. Like they they told us what the world was. They didn't really hide stuff from us. And I think that was important to us to be able to understand more worldly things. Like we were writing poems about racism while our friends were going to birthday parties or like we were talking about police brutality while our friends were doing other child-like things. So it helped us like mature more. I think being in those environments and just learning from our, from older people.
1: And I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because I was going to jump in a few minutes ago, even though I know this is your segment. We got some slack often mm. about taking you guys to places with us because some people, it's an adult conversation. Yeah, some, some people think that children are supposed to be seen and not heard. If my kids could not attend an event that I was going to, then that was not a place me to go because I I felt like they were an extension of me. And how could they ever learn how to be a productive citizen or how to to be what society expected them to be if they were never allowed the opportunity?
0: Stacy, what has it been like teaching at Central High School? The whole world wants to
1: know. Teaching at Central High School is the only place I've ever taught, so it's all I've ever known. I do know that every year I am personally taken aback at at how privileged I am to be at Little Rock Central High School, which is, I guess, goes full circle to the very beginning of, of this podcast when I was talking about meeting you. I, I, I know that the only reason I am able to to be a teacher at Little Rock Central High School is because of the Little Rock Nine. So for me, it's very, very personal. I am in- internally indebted to all of them and the, and the people before them that, that fought and paved the way so that I could have the opportunity to teach at Central.
0: Is it an ever-present conversation at the school, the Little Rock Nine, the legacy? Like, What does that look like and feel like in the school? It it depends on who
1: you're talking to in the school. Okay, so the non-politically correct thing <laughs> which I know some people will probably be upset by me even saying this. So you you have different you have different tracks. You have some students that are there that honestly have absolutely no knowledge of its historical significance. Some are there beca- like they are there because of its significance and their parents were insistent that they go to this school because they understood or understand its importance. So it, it's these polar opposite ends. And you, you would think that the students there, all of them would be very versed in its history and that they would be sick of hearing about the Little Ragnar because you would think that they would know so much. But sadly that that's not the truth. That's not their reality. So every year I, I start from the beginning and I promise you there there are a lot of students who still don't know. Most of my students originally are ninth graders. So maybe that has something to do with it also. By the time they they graduate, my hope is that everybody is very familiar with the story. But I think for the most part it it's a it functions as a normal high school and the students are kind of unaware of their of the the privilege that they have that, that comes along with going to the school. And on the flip side, from the rest of the world, people come to Central every day, all day, Tour buses come in, famous people are there all of the time, but our students don't necessarily know that because the way the tours and everything are scheduled, the students are in class. So a lot of times we'll go, we'll get home and we'll watch the news and then we'll find out, you know, that a president was at our school that day and we had absolutely no idea because we're just going on our normal day-to-day business. And when they do allow students to participate in those activities there, a lot of times the the selection is very interesting. They, they sometimes whoever is there may request a certain type of class. come. Maybe they only want a history class to come or maybe they only want creative writing or they only want to talk to drama students. And so it's still not necessarily where the whole school or every student is invited to participate in those
0: activities or are are aware of of everything. I'm really curious to hear from your perspective, Jamie. What has it been like to go to Central High School and be, you know, on the brink of graduating from the famous Central High School?
2: Well, I think it's about the students want to the students want to learn or the students want to hear about it because it depends on the class. Like I I remember in my civics class we walked over to the historic site. Like, it depended on the teacher, really. So I've had a few teachers, like, throughout the years try to incorporate it, or during, the like, around September, maybe, like, during the anniversary of the desegregation, or maybe Black History Month, but at certain times. But it's not, like, a regular thing that you do, just like, ah, I'm always hearing about this. But there are, if you listen, and if you observe things. If you notice, like when you first walk in through the building, there's a whole plaque over there and there's stuff. And obviously the historic site is right across the street. So I feel like if a student wanted to learn about it or was interested in knowing the importance and the significance of where they go to school, it would not be hard to find out stuff about it. But if you don't care or if you're indifferent about it, then it's also easy to just ignore it. But this year, our Black History Play was all about honoring the first Blacks. That was the theme, was first Blacks at Central High. And so obviously they talked about the Little Rock Nine, but more than just the Little Rock Nine, they also talked about like the first Black athletic director or the first Black principal. So that was cool. And it's also the student's job, too, because last year, the Black History Program, it was more open to just have whatever you wanted to do. And my poet gang, my poetry team, we had poems on the Little Rock Nine. My brother and two others have a poem where they took on the perspective of the three males In the Little Rock Nine. And they did that poem last year. And that brought a lot of attention because that's a school wide assembly. So all, you know, nearly 3000 students heard them doing really entertaining poetry where they were talking about um, the checklist of being a Little Rock Nine. Like they were like, do you have your pencils? Check. Do you have your paper? Check. Do you have your courage? Check. Do you have your nonviolent mindset? Check. So saying how it was different, you know, for different students transitioning into Little Rock Nine. And also with the playwriting, Real also wrote a play about the different perspectives in a white student's first day of school at Central versus a black student's first day at school at Central. First day at Central, which was a really cool opposing viewpoints because the white student was like, yeah, this is another day. You know, I got all my new clothes. Whereas the black student in 57 was like, OK, this is the. The nicest suit that my uncle passed down to me and the white student was like, oh, I have to worry about these black people coming in, whereas the black student was just worried about his safety. So I know with my friend group, which are poets and creatives, we like to incorporate history and things whenever we're speaking out or writing out about things to always teach people stuff while also entertaining
0: them. Righteous Poets. I have a little snippet on my phone from 2017, which marked the 60th anniversary of the desegregation of Central High School. And I sat in the Robinson Auditorium in complete awe as I watched you perform a poem that was Walking in the shoes of the Little Rock Nine and commemorating that occasion, Jamie, can you tell me about Righteous Poets? You have a book. Collectively, with Righteous Poets, wrote t- approximately twenty poems about the Little Rock Nine. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I am the current president of the Righteous Poetry Club at the Little Rock Central High School, and we are a poetry collective. So we perform one to two, sometimes three times a week at different school and different schools, churches festivals, programs, events, whatever. So yeah, with the anniversary of the 57 crisis, we got to meet with eight of the Little Rock Nine, all of the living Little Rock Nine. We got to interview them thoroughly, take pictures with them on multiple occasions. And we got research done. Like we went in, we started researching, we took notes as we were interviewing them. I still have voice memos in my phone of um, Elizabeth Eckford telling her horrific stories. And we just sat down the summer before school started, and we just wrote a lot of Little Rock Nine-inspired poems because we knew that the 60th Commemoration events were coming up, and this is what we do, you know? We're poets, so we wanted to be all over these events. We did bus tours. They took bus tours all around um, the historic places of Little Rock, and we were doing poems on the buses and at the different stops. We went to Daisy Bay's house, and we did a poem at that stop. And then at just different events, we did poems. So we knew that we were going to be busy during the September season. So we did write a lot, and we published a book entitled A Righteous Look at the Crisis. It's at the Little Rock Central High Historic. It's at the Visitor Center. That's pretty much yeah, it.
0: I was gonna ask because you know people listening are gonna say, "How can I get a copy?" I'm so intrigued. They're <laughs> saying like they can call up the visitor center, and I'll leave that information in the show notes so people can definitely yes. check it out. Stacy Miss Stacy McAdoo, you are the Teacher of the Year. Congratulations on that incredible honor. If I understand correctly, you we're first nominated by the school district and then the state. You are the quintessential teacher of the year. <laughs> And I hope we can stretch this year out as far and long as <laughs>
1: possible Yeah, okay. So the way the process works, it, it's a very long process. You, you first have to get nominated at your school. So your staff nominates multiple people and then they vote on who they want to represent the school. Then once you win for the school, then you're put in the hat for the district. Once you make it, for the district, then you're put in the hat excuse me in the hat for the regional, which there are 16 different um, regions of Arkansas. Then they narrow it down from those 16 to the final four. then they select I mean so it, it honestly, it was almost a year process before even being named. My position technically does not go into effect until July 1st 2019 through July 1st, 2020. And the paper had it listed that the teacher of the year takes a sabbatical, but it's really not a sabbatical. It's a year of service. After the school year ends, I will be traveling around representing the state of Arkansas and talking about best practices, visiting classrooms, learning from other teachers, seeing what works in different places. I will also be a part of the state board of education. I won't have a vote, but I will have a voice. So every time they have their board meetings, I will be there once a month on the panel putting in my input as a teacher. And I said, I'll start doing stuff after the school year, but that isn't exactly true because I was named teacher of the year in October. And although I'm still in the classroom, I have been, I have been everywhere. And, and and so I have California? to warn I have to remind people that I'm sti- that I'm still in the classroom right now, and I can't I can't do everything, but I do. Um, and I
2: monitor for her avid class eleventh graders, and they're always like, Miss Mac. I thought next year was your year off, and they started crying whenever she was announced. Oh, that's a funny story. Yeah. Whenever she was announced, the. 2019 Arkansas Teacher of the Year, they all ran up on stage, gave her a big hug. And there's like a picture in the newspaper of them like literally crying because they're like, I'm happy for you, but yeah. you won't be here my senior year. Like we need you. And they are taking the best teacher out of the class.
1: It, it's, it's really bittersweet. And we had, and, and honestly, we're still processing all of that in the classroom. And so we had to have a conversation. It was really funny before I was named Teacher of the Year, everyone was real. All of my students were really happy. And then... T- I remember I came to, to class one day and the students said, I don't know why y'all are so happy. Did y'all not read the press release? <laughs> uh, uh, no. Yeah. And so the kids was like, what are you talking about? It said, if she wins, then she's not going to be our teacher next year. The kids were like, what? And then they started saying, well, I'm praying that you don't get it. So then we <laughs> had to have this whole conversation about, um, you know, how we have to be like, so don't I celebrate your successes? And are I happy when you get things we have to, you know, we're going to To work through this, it's it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for the kids because, in theory, you would think that anyone who's selected as Teacher of the Year that they love, they love their students, they love teaching. So to to remove us from what we love, it is challenging. But I, I also understand the reasoning behind it. It's not that you want to pluck this person away. It's so that this person is able to amplify the best of teaching and and bring to the table some of the issues from their point of view because a lot of the people that are making policy decisions about education are not educators or have never been in education. So it, it's important to to hear from people who are practitioners and that ultimately is why that person has a year of service.
0: I'm sorry your students are really going to miss you, but the greater benefit for everyone is that your voice will be spread far and wide. You can share this incredible knowledge and I didn't realize that you'd be out for a year and just kind of what it entailed.
1: It's almost like, I I, I was teasing and now
0: Jamie is in this
1: position. I used to say it's almost like winning the Miss America pageant. People want you to make these appearances and and they want to know what is your platform? And you're like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a teacher. What do you mean? What is my platform? And, and now, I, you
0: know, you're not allowed to ever say just, a teacher.
1: I, I know, I know. And so you do. Yeah. That's a whole, whole <laughs> conversation that we'll, we'll have to have, but those yeah, for sure that come, that come through your mind or that at least that come through mine, because even though I, I am very involved in the community and I, I have my opinions on a lot of things, for the most part, I go in my classroom and it's me and the kids. So now I'm, I'm in this new world of adults and, and it, it's, it's just very, very different. Very different.
0: But the impact, your impact, I mean, I've, I'm glad you're going to be on such a huge platform to be able to share because you're obviously clearly doing m- miraculous things with your students and your daughter and your son and in your family. So Jamie, you're also, you are also have a wonderful title at the moment. I mean, besides all of the awesome things that you are already doing, you're Miss Heritage's Outstanding Teen. Yes. So what does that entail? Uh, congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Well,
2: okay. So a family friend who goes to our church, she got me into it. She was like, Jamie, um, I think you have a really good chance at competing in Miss Heritage. And I was like, well, I'm not a pageant girl. Um, she was like, but I think your talent, because you, it's four different phases of the competition. You have to model in an evening gown. You have to do an interv- the interview part. You have to do the talent part. And then you have to do an onstage question. And she said, well, I think you'd be really good at all of them. But especially like your talent will win them over. And then you're very well spoken. So I think you do good on the onstage question and the interview. So she just thought it would be a good fit for me. And I don't know, we were just like, okay, we'll try. So we went to like a couple of the meetings and got like a better understanding of it and stuff. And then I went and I won overall best interview out of all the contestants. And I was satisfied with that. And then when they said, and your 2019 Miss Heritage's Outstanding Teen is number six, Jamie. I was like, what? (laughs) up there and they miss America 2010 was the one who put the crown and the sash on me I didn't even like I was satisfied with winning best interviews beyond excited just to have been crowned and given that title and now I'm doing I think it's kind of similar in that they said something about a year of service like I need Mm -hmm. to make appearances and take pictures and stuff and so I'm supposed to be doing all of that which I am but I'm already very busy just with my life (laughs) so don't like it (laughs) But, um, that's really cool, and now I get to compete for miss Arkansas's outstanding team in june well, let let me jump in there
1: for a <laughs> second. I know uh, i don't know that the significance of Jamie being named uh, that everyone knows the significance of her being named miss Heritage. miss Heritage is a this is she's the first, so she is living history by mm-hmm. virtue of that, but the Miss Heritage Scholarship Foundation was started to um It was established in an effort to have African-Americans represented. And it specifically was established to represent Arkansas, historically black colleges and universities and multicultural organizations in the Miss Arkansas scholarship pageant. And part of it's first of its kind. And the reason they did it was because traditionally, African-Americans and people of color are underrepresented. I I think that that just in and of itself is is phenomenal.
0: You're both raining at the same time. I know, which That's is interesting for my dad. And then you're coming up on graduation. I know.
2: I know. So I lately I've been saying So I am a full-time performer. I'm a full-time creative, a full-time writer, and I'm also expected to be a full-time student. So there's been some tension between my mother and I as we're (laughs) getting to school early or staying after school real late, both on the computers, because I still have, you know, like I'm behind in some classes. I'm missing a lot of school doing a lot of different things. And so like, that's an interesting thing too. Like she still is in the classroom. She still has to teach her students and I still have to do homework and stuff. So as I'm I'm trying and apply to apply for scholarships. Yeah, so I'm trying to like apply for scholarships. I'm also getting emails about we need Miss Heritage to make an appearance here, or Jamie, can you come to my school at this time to perform this? And then, oh, but I'm also in the school play, so I have rehearsals after school. It is a very busy time in our life, it's a very exciting time, and we're happy to see what will come in the future.
0: That is so great. It's been such an honor talking to you both. Like this intergenerational aspect, is it just brings so much life and so much color and texture to the conversation and just our lives. <laughs> Jamie, it would be an absolute honor if you'd be willing to share one of your beautiful poems with the Roots of the Spirit community. There's one poem in particular, and I'm like, I know the name of your poem. Why am I? It's a lesson in... Lesson Still Relevant. <laughs> yes. Probably the most
2: fitting for the conversation it kind of falls right into yeah, the conversation and this is one that i frequented over the 60th commemorations of the desegregation of literary central high school in 1957 so <laughs> i said that a lot so i know how to word it but this is an original poem entitled less Than still relevant my parents were my first history teachers At an early age, in my earliest days, I was taught the culture behind my race, the beauty beyond my face, the common inventions and ways of living that you can trace back to Africa. I knew about the brotherhood that was taken from the motherland. My mother's hands never tamed my natural roots. My mother's hands held me as we watched roots. My father's glance compelled me to pay attention to roots. My brother and I... Washed eyes on the prize. My brother and I watched documentaries that show Martin Luther King died, Emmett Till died, black people die In America, black people die. My brother and I watched the news as Trayvon Martin's parents cried. My parents took us to museums and we observed the gyms. They took us to lectures and we listened back then. They taught us about Central High School too. Way before we went to school, and in a way, I felt like the tenth little rock nine from behind, the little sister of them all, the fly on the wall, the shadow on call, and I saw how they retreated. And I saw how they retreated and nonviolently fought the system that fought them back ten times harder. I saw because I am the daughter of the movement. I knew this at an early age, so by ninth grade, I expected attending Central High to be iconic, to be as if I would be a part of history. I represent the third wave generation after the desegregation. It's amazing that it wasn't that long ago. I know that we have come from a long ways, but we still have a ways to go. But at least in Arkansas, we can say it started at Central High, where I am now one of nine black students in a school of nearly 3,000, a place that has over 20 languages and counting a school where I am not greeted every day with two, four, six, eight. We don't want to integrate shoutings. In 1957, Central High was the beginning of change. And I knew this at an early age. I mean, in my earliest days because my parents were my first history teachers.
0: <laughs> I'm snapping, I'm glowing. Oh my goodness, you are phenomenal. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your respective, amazing, reigning titles. Arkansas teacher of the Year and Miss Heritage Outstanding Teacher. <laughs> I'm so excited and happy Women's History Month. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Look, it's March, but I'm still (laughs) playing. Year round, year round.